0: This is Christopher Cardenbicus, and you're listening to Paper Cuts on Clock Tower Radio. I'm here with Ed Luce, the creator of Wovable Oaf, one of my very dear friends, and we are hanging out at the Los Angeles Art Book Fair at the tail end of February 2017. It is uh, a morning edition, so we're hanging out, just had our coffee, and this fair is slowly getting underway. Um, Ed, how's it going? Thanks so much for joining me.
1: Good, no, thank you for having me on here. Um, I've known about this for a while now, and I've sort of been secretly wondering if you were going to ask me, so when you sent me that email, I was more than happy to oblige. No, I'm doing good, you know, this fair is just getting going, and it's it's one of the more interesting fairs that I do uh, as a comics person because it's an art book fair, and there are zines and paper products and things like that um, out there, Um, print editions, a little different from the comic stuff that I'm used to, but also pretty closely related. It's just a shift in in sort of iconography I would say
0: yeah and and your position kind of in between the art and the comics world is a really interesting spot for you to be in I really want to dig into that Um, but first can you just give a brief intro as to what Wovable Oaf is
1: sure Uh, I always say the the elevator pitch for for Wovable is it it's a book about big scary ugly hairy dudes and the people who love them (laughs) and cats and if the person hasn't run off after that introduction, I say, but it's also a platform for me to talk about my, my uh, passion for music, uh, fashion, wrestling. Uh, it's kind of my little pocket universe in the way that um, Matt Groening has created a Simpsons universe. And, and uh, Matt Parker and uh, I'm sorry, Matt Stone and Trey Parker got that, have done something for South Park. You know, similarly, it's a platform for them to talk about their little uh, their
0: perspectives, their points of view. And how long has we both been running? The first
1: comic came out in 2008, very late. Uh, and I did two back-to-back releases, so the next one was in 2009, which is kind of unusual for, for an indie comic where someone is doing everything on their own. It's a little bit harder of a schedule to keep to in terms of monthly, so yeah. for a while I was releasing things on a quarterly basis. Um, so, it's yeah, started in 2008. Um, I guess next year will be the 10-year anniversary of it. Uh,
0: Congratulations, that's so amazing.
1: Thanks. Yeah, it really doesn't feel that way. Um, it it feels like I just started it yesterday in some yeah. sense. Um, and I think that's because there have been these slow plateaus of growth and progress. Um, but when I look back at those initial stories that I did, it does feel like I was just sitting down and doing them for some reason. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. But it's also not just comics. You're producing records. You're producing like shadow boxes that are full of ephemera from the comics themselves and really expanding the universe in a material sense, way outside of the like printed and stapled pages. Yeah, it's true. I always kind of lead with the
1: comics explanation of what I do. But yeah, as you pointed out, um, my background uh, and schooling at UC San Diego, both of our alma mater, um, was to be interdisciplinary and to not uh, limit your... Uh, ideas or your concepts or your themes to one medium so at UC San Diego I went in for painting but I ended up getting my degree in performance and installation and when it came time to look at making comics I really said well I want to involve as many senses in this as I possibly can so the visual is taken care of it's already an innately visual experience Uh, but I also want to make music because there's a band in the comic so we I've made several records uh, singles really not albums Uh, and and scratch-and-sniff cards. There were Oafberry Pops at one point, uh, and really T-shirts, prints, underpants, underpants, yeah, just trying to bring, I look at it as sort of bringing artifacts from the comic into the real world, so there's always a a reason to do it. There's seldom something arbitrary about it, or, or I hope not too gimmicky about it. Um, I also make things that I would buy and I love special edition stuff. That's one of the reasons why the, the art book fair is such a, a great place for someone like me to even peruse um, yeah. because yeah, you, you get like the unique little things. I, I was looking, I think at Billy Miller has these towels that he's branded with his logo on them and they're like spank <laughs> towels. And it's, I love that kind of stuff. Yeah.
0: Um, I feel like last time we were able to talk more in depth about Wolf Wolf was partially in San Diego as part of the, the do anything show and during that discussion you had mentioned being very adamant about talking about lovable oaf as an art project um and not just within the more narrow confines of a comic project is that still true now that you're uh publishing a little bit more frequently with lovable oaf and doing more comics projects it's difficult because my time is largely
1: um eaten up now with making the actual pages for the book so i don't have as much time to freestyle um the the ephemera of it the art project side of it the physical objects but because i've been doing this for a little while one of the benefits is that a lot of people have been inspired by what i do and have been able to take over some of that for me so i end up collaborating yeah the the art project has expanded to include other people who whose skill set is just beyond mine um eric urspamer who's a, a phoenix based uh sculptor he has made my figures from very early on I have a couple I call them in action figures after the Kevin Smith clerks figures that came out uh, now probably a decade plus ago but he cast these resin figures sculpts of my characters uh, recently he made a costume of the goat blood wrestling character which will be making appearance at the LA Art Book Fair probably today definitely on Saturday uh, fully you know put together detailed has a horns has a a real fur beard real fur leggings a tail um so that's that's been wonderful to just kind of get in touch with people that actually can make things that i can't there's a woman the last time i was in la a month ago who brought an actual oaf plush doll that she had made because in the comic the oaf makes his own plush dolls Uh, so she made a replica of that and she was like if you ever want more just let me know so it's been great if i can't keep the art project going outside of the book as much as i used to i have this wonderful pool of collaborators that uh, have been inspired and and will do what i can't anymore
0: and um you've also started working with a writing partner too right yeah, yeah. Uh, Matt
1: Wobensmith, who has a long history in uh, zine culture, he's always at the LA Art Book Fair. He uh, still runs a store called Goat Blood, which is named, he, he jacked the name from one of the characters in my comics because the two things kind of started uh, around the same time. But it's a, it was a store for vintage zines. It's no longer open to the public in San Francisco, but he does keep the space, and it's, it's almost like a warehouse, and you will have appointments. Um, he also released a lot of music uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s under the Outpunk imprint and a, a zine called Outpunk. So uh, he very early on encouraged me to explore this as a comics property and has been involved in writing the character that's based on him called Smusher for quite a while. He won't let me touch that character, and whenever we've done little short stories, he's the one that writes them. But he has fully taken over the book with issue number five uh, in terms of the writing duties. He's writing the story from Smusher's perspective now, So, and I'm still drawing it, and Contributing some writing to it because he is not super familiar with comics as a medium, um, but we worked together really well. The, the first issue uh, is debuting here, uh, number or I'm sorry, the first issue of our collaboration, number five is debuting here.
0: Um, so yeah, it's been fun. There's also something really interesting that gets brought up along those lines um, between like wolf, wolf and audience and community um, and location, because it does seem like San Francisco plays or the Bay Area plays a large part in the comic. And being able to work with your peers uh, to collaborate with, but also incorporating them into the storyline, and having such of a sense of the comics community or just the Bay Area community um, also be part of the audience, and that like scenarios being reflected back to them. Can you talk a little bit about um, the importance of being with your people, with the comic?
1: Yeah, in a way, I was not fully aware when I moved to the Bay Area in 2007 that it was such a hotbed for crumb- are Crumb's early work and uh, I think it's the Furry Freak Brothers and there was this, this whole tradition of comics uh, in the 60s and 70s underground comics that started there. In fact, the very first issues of Wobble were printed by the same printer that did a lot of the early Zap comics and, and Crumb comics. So I didn't, I, I quite accidentally discovered I was a part of this history through Matt who had made all of these suggestions you should go to this printer. This is sort of stylistically what you might want to explore. Um, but everything else really came from me moving to san francisco and really like steeping in that northern california culture and seeing all of these little pocket um subcultures uh the comic subculture the gay bear scene in san francisco that i really feel started there you know it may have spread like wildfire quickly in the 80s and 90s and today it's it's something that's super familiar um but just seeing how it was the uh the sort of the locus of all of that if I'm getting that right, Um, the the loci, uh, the location, of all of these things um, in the same city made it a, there was a lot of very unique storytelling opportunities that I could jump off of and be influenced by there. So it really is a, there's a a comic that Justin Hall, uh, a fellow queer comics creator, has made called Only in San Francisco. Sort of tells a very specific uh, sexual story of him picking up somebody in a bar. But I often um, think of it in terms of bubble oaf is. it's a story that could only have, taking place in san francisco this this place where there's a lot of um, rock and punk gays uh, maximum rock and roll uh, the the zine comes from there um you know there's a strong gay culture there uh everybody is kind of in everybody's uh, uh business and and uh, the chocolate and the peanut butter mix really well in that city um what's interesting about the comic is that was the way it was when I started in 2008. It has radically changed since then. So the comic has almost become this, this time capsule piece of what San Francisco used to be like. Yeah. Um, and the tech industry has just completely changed it now. So in this new issue that uh, Matt is working on because he works in the tech industry, um, he's starting to explore how some of these changes have, have
0: come about. Yeah, that was gonna be my next question is like, how does Wolf get affected by the changes that are happening in San Francisco?
1: Well, the, the main o- Oaf story with uh, Oaf and Eiffel, uh, his his love interest that's in a band, that is getting kind of broken off and, and made into a backup story. But Smusher is, uh, in, in some ways, as I was drawing the story that Matt had written, Smusher is one of these last holdouts of the old San Francisco. He's not a tech worker. Um, the kids and the, the, uh, the art kids... And a lot of the creatives that used to live in San Francisco have been chased out and they've either gone to Oakland or they've moved to uh, Portland or Seattle. So the characters in the current storyline are really the last kind of dregs, the holdouts uh, in, oh, yeah. yeah, in Smusher's case, he is funded by his mother uh, and is asking for money from his mother um, to stay at his uh, his apartment that he's lived in, in, in since the 90s. And really, it's an exploration of who these holdouts actually are. Um, it's it's a bit of a generalization, but there are people that have lived there that have not been priced out, that have rent control, that haven't been kicked out. Uh, and then there are just sort of kids who are part of the old neighborhood of the mission whose families might own the apartments or the houses that they live in, so they can't be removed. But they're in this community, they're in this neighborhood, the mission that doesn't resemble you know where they grew up anymore. So there's some tension, there's some friction. Some of it is racial, some of it is economic. The levels of privilege that Smusher has versus this group of characters that he starts to fall in with, um, which is the Muffin Top Girls, the sort of girl gang um, musical group. Um, we're exploring how these outliers are kind of living together and coping with how much San Francisco has actually changed.
0: So I also wanted to trace your steps from UC San Diego in graduate school to San Francisco and actually starting the comic. Um, Were you doing any comics works as a grad student?
1: Uh, Not at all, but it's worth saying that I was very influenced by comics like Lichtenstein, pop art. There was a show when I was going to UC San Diego called Superflat that uh, debuted at, oh God, it's been so long. Uh, there's a collective of art galleries somewhere in LA, and I can't remember the name of it, but it was one of the. They had a lot of Mur- uh, Takeshi Murakami work in it. Um, so comics were at that point always, you know, for decades before that, been a part of, of fine art, uh, but it uh, had always been mined as an aesthetic and not the actual content itself to a large degree. Uh, not exploring the traditional narratives that you would find in comics. Again. Like this, this is Ed Luce and you're listening to Paper Cuts on Clock Tower Radio.
0: So along the lines of, of bringing the like business end into the, into the comics, you've been doing the uh, print and book and zine and comic fairs for a while now and in fact that's where we met even before we discovered this uc san diego connection was uh at either like ape or one of the new york art book fairs um but what fairs are you drawn to and what's the difference between a a comic focused fair and something like this which is more like artists books and zines
1: yeah that is a really interesting question because i i kind of playfully teased the the gentleman that runs this uh this show Shannon Michael Caine quite a bit about the presence of comics people here and who makes it in and who doesn't and why Uh, because a lot of my comics friends are like I really want to do that show and I kind of make artsy comics so why can't I get into this show and uh, it's interesting because I think a lot of the things that we were just talking about um, looking at what I do is more of an art project that's maybe the reason why I get in versus some of those other folks Um, is that uh, if you look at the book and you read it there are Uh, Layers to what's going on. It's not really a a very straightforward presentation. There's a lot of stuff in the background. There's a lot of uh, situations that are left open-ended, so it's a little more conceptual of a read. It's it's more of an ambiguous read. Um, And I think that that uh, versus what's really um, stylistically driven and product-driven at a show like San Diego Comic-Con. Um, which we do great at. Uh, In some ways, that is uh, surprisingly our best show of the year, even though we don't do a superhero comic and we don't draw in a a very um, slick kind of realistic style. Uh, We end up being counter-programming, and some of the weird, freaky things that we make, whether they're figures or underwear or whatever, um, it's different enough from the common products that you would find at San Diego Comic-Con that we stick out by virtue of that. And I think that the same thing is true of here, you know, just walking around, I see there's a lot of diversity in what people put forward, their shirts, um, there's prints, there's some clothing, there's pins. These are all stock-and-trade stuff that I bring to a lot of the comic events. So um, in some ways, we we perfectly do walk that line in between a fine arts fair like this and a uh, a more commercial Comic-Con thing that's purely about that kind of stuff. Um, I will say, though, that I'm curious to see what will happen when we get into the costumes later today because I don't know if Shannon realizes it or not, but we are bringing cosplay to L.A. Art Book Fair. I'm- so excited for that yeah and I, I have two different models so um you know we'll see what their levels of comfort are and i'm going to get a little <laughs> dressed up in solidarity for them so at comic shows it people are very attracted to it they get it because they do understand the cosplay element here i am curious and maybe this will be another difference between the two types of show if we are just like pariah here <laughs> people are just like fight or flee you know yeah. uh,
0: well, if you ever need a cosplay buddy, I'd be more than happy to, to <laughs> dress can, up with you guys.
1: We can find somebody that that you can we can fit you into the comic. Uh, you, you could be Eiffel, but you might have to cut your hair. <laughs> oh, that can be okay. I can deal with
0: that. Sure. I also wanted to talk about uh, like access points with an audience because I feel like comics can be both very open to an audience or to anyone to like join in or take part of it and like pick up a comic and kind of see what's going on, but it can also be isolating at the same time because of the fandom of it and like larger canons of storytelling if you're looking at larger things like marvel and dc um but it's similar with the art world like the art world can be very walled off and uh kind of classist not even kind of um and that becomes a barrier to entry um but i feel like zines are also a good entry point for like a larger art world which is why this fair is so interesting um how do you see that at play with your work and Werewolf Wolf sits in both of these worlds? Well, it's interesting. In the comics
1: world, I'm very much in the shadow of the digital webcomic industry, which yeah. I don't want any part of. Like, I, I don't put my comics up on the web with the exception of uh, a series I did of webcomics for Vice. Uh, that's the first stuff I ever put online that was exclusively web content uh, because I prefer the object. And, and to go back to the previous question that you asked briefly, I think that's another thing that ties me to the art book fair is I am sort of passionate about the object and the print version of something. Um, so that uh, getting away from web stuff, uh, it, this, is, this feels much more like a home for me. Um, than a lot of what goes on in the comics world. In the comics world, you make your name online with your webcomic and you give it away for free, and then people come and find you and buy, maybe buy a copy of it, but maybe not. Maybe instead buy your fan art or or the print that you've made. Um, So you don't really make a lot of money off of that, and I'm very much driven by that uh, paper object side of things that I think ties me a little bit closer to the fine arts world. Um, but yeah, access points are, are interesting because I do I come from that gallery school of fine arts where I like meeting people and I like talking with them at events like you would at a gallery opening of some kind. So my style of presenting my work and giving access to people, um, to it is to actually physically be there and meet them and talk to them and, and kind of hand sell them they can see an image or something online but I, I much more value the response and the feedback and the visitation you know the the chemistry that you can have with someone who's reacting you know on a gut level to what you're doing or has been reading it for years and is really eager to come up and talk to you about it for the first time um yeah i i think uh, I don't know if that quite answers your question. I, I went off into the ether a little bit, but yeah, so right. but yeah I mean, it, kind of being tied back into the fine arts world, this, th- this type of show feels very comfortable to me because it's like a giant gallery opening, basically.
0: Um, and you're also teaching now, yes?
1: Yeah, yeah. I've been teaching at California College of the Arts in San Francisco and Oakland for, I guess this is my fifth year um, yeah. But in a kind of reduced capacity, I teach in the comics MFA program, uh, and that is the bulk of my, my workload. Uh, it's working with grads uh, who are on, they're working on their thesis, so they present their, their thesis work, which in comics means uh, a script, character sketches, thumbnail sketches of pages, up to then completed pages. And then I kind of hand them off, that's their first year. Um, we have three semesters that only take place in the summer Uh, One of them is uh, the first year, it's a month in July, second year, another month in July, and then third year, uh, you get your last, that's your your final month. Um, In between that, though, the two-year span is when we do the mentorships, which I I just described. Um, But in that second summer uh, where we all get together, I teach us a publishing workshop that's about um, physically printing your books and then hand-assembling them, so exactly what you do as well, making these limited edition books that have a foot in the zine world, but also have a foot in the comics world that you can charge a little bit more for because they're this handmade thing, so... Um, Yeah, that is predominantly uh, my role at CCA. I do teach a 2D design class for freshmen, so I get both ends of the spectrum. I get the you know rank-and-file (laughs) 18-year-olds who make me feel older every single year. And then uh, I do really look forward to my interactions with the older grad students because they are passionate about what they're doing. They're very curious. There are very few comics programs in the country um, that you can go to and and do that sort of thing where it's a total package and it's not just... um, Trade-driven. It's not yeah. just about getting a commercial job. It's about realizing your vision, whether that's a, a narrative vision or a conceptual vision, or both.
0: It seems like teaching is a, a pretty important part of your overall practice as well. You've been teaching at Alfred before mm-hmm. this, yes. And we, before uh, recording this interview, we were just talking about how teaching was such an important part of going through the graduate program at UC San Diego. So, how do you see uh, teaching and what you in within the larger world of what you do? Well,
1: definitely one of
0: the things that I was uh,
1: in undergrad, I was an illustration major. And it's not that my professor uh, failed me in terms of the technical side of things, but I didn't feel like I was really terribly well prepared, not just by my illustration teacher, but the program itself to actually function in the real world and come up with nobody wanted to talk business. Nobody wanted to talk. How do I make a rudimentary business plan to make the solvent, you know, to be in the black? Uh, so really going through not only the UCSD program, which taught me to be interdisciplinary, but then kind of being thrown out on my own um, to sink or swim in terms of the comics business side of things. Uh, I developed my own business plan. I was very eager to share that with people because, at least in my view, it was working. You know, uh, and it has worked for me. And it was not web based. That was another thing where if you if you give yourself away for free online, um, tons of people will see it, but you won't necessarily make any money on that unless you can work out some sort of advertising situation or have a Patreon or, or have a Kickstarter to actually fund your book. But I was all about kind of gutting it out on the retail level and on the business level. And it's something that a lot of people are uncomfortable to be quite honest talking about in, in academia. They don't want to talk about money. They think it kind of ruins the, um, the romantic side of why you're doing things, you know? And, and it's interesting. Uh, You see these days, a lot of articles and, and and click, Clickbait sort of articles about um, artists doing things for free. Or there's that site that's like, you know, five bucks for a design or something like that. And that just, it hurts me so much to see stuff like that because there are other ways of doing it. And I'm eager to, um, you know, try and and teach people that, whether it's at CCA or I used to run workshops uh, at various comic uh events uh, or comic uh stores i also did workshops at events for years um you know in in portland and in san francisco san francisco zine fest to just sort of say there you can buy your own equipment for really cheap and you can make things for pennies you know uh, per copy you just have to put the your technical skills your physical hand building skills to work but if you're a studio artist that shouldn't be anything new to you you know you should be able to do that so I really uh, try and teach people to work with their skill set, and if you can't find, uh, if you can't do that yourself, try and find a crew, build a team, of like-minded individuals who want to support you, who want to explore their own uh, creative impulses, and maybe make a little money, you know, being paid or commissioned to do things. Um, so you can keep it organic. Um, this, is, this is suddenly sounding very much very new-agey. <laughs> keep it organic. Keep it local. Um, you know, work with people that are that are in your city, you know, that, that can come in and support you, and you can support them a little bit financially by paying them to make something that, that you've
0: designed. And talking about keeping it local and keeping it in your city, can you talk a little bit about the comic scene in San Francisco with Isotope being there as kind of a like central location?
1: Yeah, I don't know uh, if it's like this in other cities, but um, San Francisco's comic shops, they're almost turf wars drawn. <laughs> there are, like, boundaries drawn in neighborhoods. There's yeah. uh, whatever comics in the Castro is kind of a gay comic shop. There's Mission Comics in Uh, The Mission. Uh, Isotope happens to be a half a block away from where I live. So if anyone
0: sees you walking into Mission Comics, you're like, oh no, I had a TD on Isotope. Well,
1: there's some bleed over, certainly. But uh, definitely James and Kirsten at Isotope have been huge uh, cheerleaders of my work from the get-go. Huge supporters. Tons of advice. A lot of the stuff that I came up with that I just described has been with talking with him as a retailer about what works and what doesn't. Um, But yeah, I mean, certainly... uh, and it's interesting because each of those stores that I just mentioned cultivates its own little stable of artists, you know, people that they want to support. Um, and you, you—it's not that you won't find your work at the other stores. It's just just that if you don't go to Isotope, you won't see the giant cardboard cutout of of, of <laughs> that Katie Langeway, a fellow artist and, and a, another person, sort of in the stable of Isotope. Another artist um, has created and surprised me with one day. I, I just sort of saw it there and walked by and was like. That's awesome. Um, but yeah, I mean, San Francisco has a very unique comics culture. I think that it's changed a little bit, and it's, it's been fragmented and come together over the last 10 years with the tech industry, pricing out certain comic stores there's a little bit of a turnover rate but the stores that are there now are the ones that have the most fervent and and adoring fan bases and you know they they're go-to spots for people to do signings and things like that so it's glad to i'm glad to see in the, the the increasing digital age that the brick and mortar stores are are still you know dug in la is another uh, interesting city where that's definitely going on there are yes, lines yeah. drawn and there are little uh, groups of artists cultivated around the aesthetics of the you know the curation of basically what some of these stores carry so yeah, yeah it's interesting I, it's like, it's like gal- the gallery world totally it mirrors it absolutely in fine art yes yeah,
0: totally does Well, and before i let you go back to your table uh and selling all the really wonderful wolf of woof- 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 i wanted to ask you one last question and that is um what's your favorite type of body hair to be drawing Oh, well, it's definitely the chest hair.
1: You know, I really... uh, But are you asking, like, texturally? Yeah, yeah, like, types of marks. You know, I have to go with the oaf uh, hair, which is this... uh, If anything, it's kind of my bread and butter. Um, I put it in the inside uh, cover sheets, or not cover sheets, but book... Book, book, uh, end. book ends, yeah, the uh, I forget what they, they call them, and yeah, the end endpapers. Um, it's that sort of crisscross pattern that uh, changes in density depending on where on the oak's body it, it goes but really I do, I enjoy drawing all that it's the, the thing that I save for the last uh, it's kind of like my reward to myself for drawing backgrounds and, and perspective and you know all of that stuff which I loathe. Um, I, I generally leave the physical body blank if there's a lot of of uh, skin being exposed and draw that last. It's funny, this woman who had never seen the first book from Fantagraphics, the black and white book, came up to me and I gave her my little song and dance about hair. It's a book about hair. And she was just like, oh my God, there, there is hair on every single page. And it dawned on me that it's really not a page unless there's hair on it to some degree, yeah. whether it's on a cat or someone's head or on someone's <laughs> body. Um, so I guess I know my Brand, <laughs> I, I really do. It's so funny. We're sitting here, and, and you can't see, but there are two eye, like false <laughs> eyelashes, almost as like a compliment to what we were just talking about. Yeah. And then we immediately sort of zeroed in on it. Um, but yeah, it's <laughs> I do, I guess, have an artistic fixation on it. So,
0: <laughs> so where can people pick up love blow for? Where can people find your work?
1: Most of the uh, the the two books, uh, I should say, the two books that fanagraphics uh, put out, you can find pretty much anywhere in, in bookstores online. Um, WolfableOaf.com is the main spot where I sell my merchandise from. So so there's always some exclusive things on there. Uh, mainly the comics are, are, are sold in uh, stores and uh, comic shops. But I do have t-shirts and things. like I exclusively control that merchandise from that website. So you can find it there. The Oaf has social media Uh, profiles on on pretty much everything uh, whether it's Instagram or uh, Twitter, Facebook Uh, I just did a couple fan pages for the band Ejaculoid there's an artist page now on Facebook and there's a goat blood um, page on Facebook as well so um, yeah if you just google Lovable O for my name you should be able to find most of that stuff
0: well Ed, thanks again for taking time out to talk with me and I can't wait to see everyone in cosplay later today yes it should be interesting and thank you so much Christopher this has been really great